Good to see you guys here tonight. We are finishing the book of Romans tonight. It's been a good journey. At least I've enjoyed it. Hope you guys have too. Uh, next week we are actually going to be talking about how we interpret the Bible, um, what we mean when we say the authority of Scripture, uh, some things that we want to answer. You know, we, we say things oftentimes and we have an idea of what they mean, but there's a lot more involved. You know, when we say that the Scripture is the authority of the authority of Scripture is God's Word and how it is, whatever it says is relevant and it's God's Word for us today. So what does that mean when we say something like that? What does that mean when we look at some of the passages that talk about, you know, uh, God's laws? We don't keep the Sabbath. We don't keep the purity laws or food laws. Why not? What is the reason when we say something like that? How does that fit into that? Um, women are to have their heads covered. I see a lot of ladies here. Don't wear hats. What's going on, ladies? You know, what, why is that the case? Why does the scripture say that? And why don't we do that today? And so there's a lot of things like that. And so when we say something, well, the Bible is the authority of God. What does that mean? How does that apply to us? And so I want to unwrap some of those things. It's impossible to do it in just one uh, talk. But I want to give us some foundational things that I think would be really helpful. And so I'm really excited about that. And that's going to be next week. The week after that, Janot is going to be here from Haiti, and he's going to talk to us about the work that's taking place, the cafeteria that we're building there in Haiti. I don't know if he'll have any more pictures or not, but hopefully you guys will be here to welcome him. I know he's going to be doing a lot. When he comes to the States, he travels everywhere to kind of connect with all the partners that he has over the United States. It's not just here in California, but we are privileged to be able to have him here with us the Wednesday after the next Wednesday, whatever date that is. So anyway, what time? 19th. There it is. And so it is in the card. There are some cards available somewhere here if you want to know what's happening the month of November. They're over here on the counter. Anyway, let's pause and let's pray as we get into the conclusion of Romans. Father, thank you for this book, Lord, that we get to once again look at your servant Paul's words and how they are so rich in application for our lives. I pray tonight that that richness would continue, that our hearts and our minds would be attentive, that we would fight off the distraction, and that we'd be open to receive all that you have for us. Thank you again for an opportunity to gather together in your name, Jesus. And we do ask your blessing. Amen. Okay. Romans 16, the conclusion. And as we conclude this, it's kind of a list of names. A lot of people have wondered about chapter 16 because in other manuscripts, chapter 16 is missing. But it's not hard to understand why because chapter 16 is kind of a list of names that would probably apply specifically to the church that was there in Rome. And so if this letter was being copied and sent to a church somewhere else, they might not include all these names because, well... That's not who you know, so let's stick with the majority of the letter, the heart of the letter, and then chapter 16 would be missing. 
And it's also awkward because it seems like Paul has closed this letter a couple of times. You know, he's kind of given a benediction, but then he's like, oh, yeah, I got to say this. I got to say this. And it's almost as if this is a difficult book or letter for Paul to close because there has been so much that he has wanted to say. But he finally comes to this place where he concludes here. And so let's start and let's kind of find out what's in a name, what's in all these names. And as we look at some of these names, I I hope it'll be something that is uh, rich for us to think about. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. First of all, he starts off with something that's interesting. A sister, her name is Phoebe, and she is a deacon. A deacon would be someone who is a leader. Immediately, we would start to think, okay, it's a woman and she's a deacon. Is that okay? It must be. Paul just said that it was. This is going to be one of those kinds of things that we talk about next week. Women, their place in church. What are those scriptures in Timothy and in Corinth where Paul says some things that are specific towards women? And why do some of them apply? Why don't they all apply? And what's interesting here is Paul is going to list a number of people. Many of them are women. We see women who are prophetesses in the book of Acts. And one scripture specifically that stands out to me when I I think of the role that women play in this new movement that God is establishing of Christianity. Remember, as we are going through the book of Romans, Paul is talking about you who are of Jewish descent and you who are Gentiles, you are now a new humanity in God. This is God's new order of things. There is no longer Jew. There is no longer Gentile. There is this new humanity in Christ. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. Things have changed dramatically. We have no idea how dramatic the change is because we don't live in that time. But it was incredible the change that has taken place in regards to women and in regards to slavery. In Luke chapter 10, if you can turn with me there real quickly, I want to look at a certain passage of scripture that maybe we overlook some of what is there. In Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 38, we have a story that's very familiar with us, the story of Martha and Mary. And it says in verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on the way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, do you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, our cultural context looks at this and we say, okay, 
Martha is asking Mary to get up and help her in the kitchen. Quit just hanging out. Get in here and help me. But do we recognize that what Mary is doing is what a disciple would do? And disciples at this time are are only men. And you see, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus as a disciple would. And Martha is saying, hey, she should be in here with me. And Jesus says, you're worried about a lot of things, but there's really only one thing you should be concerned with. And Mary has chosen that thing. And Jesus gave her permission to be there with him in this way as a disciple. Again, in the Hebrew culture, that was unheard of. This was out of sorts with what they were used to thinking. And so it was very unusual for Mary to be in this position, but Jesus didn't have a problem with it. In fact, he said, no, you need to allow her this. And see, what Christ is doing is opening the door up and the role for women that they are going to be a part of in this new humanity that God is establishing. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Phoebe is a deacon, that she has a position of authority in this area. And this area that's mentioned here is actually one that would be found near Corinth, at a port in Corinth, which is you know a pretty big city as it was and had a lot of pagan roots. And so Jesus opens the door and now we see that because that door is opening, we're going to see a lot of women filling in that role. And what a tragedy it would be if women were limited in the work of God. I'm going to just throw that out there and leave that for us to stew over and we'll talk about it more maybe next week. So anyway, Phoebe is welcomed into this area to be welcomed. She has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Next, he goes on, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. These names should sound familiar to us. Priscilla and Aquila, they first appeared in Acts chapter 18. From that passage, we learned that they had previously been residents in Rome. Now, remember, we talked about how Claudius, the emperor of Rome, had kicked out all the Jews in 52 AD because of the disruption that they were causing. And so because he banished them, they had to leave Rome. And then when Claudius died, that edict died with him, and so then the Jews are welcomed back, which is when Paul is writing this. But that anti-Semitism that was there was a part of that, and as they left, Priscilla and Aquila settled down in Corinth. They were tent makers, which was Paul's own trade, and he found a home with them when he left Corinth and went to Ephesus. So we see they were in Rome, they went to Corinth, and then they were in Ephesus where Paul found a home with them. Priscilla and Aquila went with him and settled there, and we see that in Acts chapter 18. There they came to Ephesus, and in Ephesus there was a brilliant scholar named Apollos, but he had not at that time 
learned the full grasp of what Christianity was. So who was it that helped him understand? It was Aquila and Priscilla. They took him into their house again and gave him friendship and instructed them in the faith. We see that Acts 18, the latter portion, verses 24 and 26. From the very beginning, they were people who kept an open heart and an open door to the people of God. They were of tremendous value to Paul and to the church overall. The next time we hear of them, they're in Rome again. The Edict of Claudius had banished again, died with him. The Jews had ceased to be exiled, and they came back. And like many others, as they came back, they, their old homes, their old businesses started up again. We discovered that they are just the same there. Again, a group of Christians are now meeting in their house. Isn't it amazing that people who are generous are generous no matter where they're at, no matter where they go. The generosity follows them. There had to be some kind of financial hardship moving from place to place to place. But it didn't affect their generosity. They were generous people. And so for the last time, they appear in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, and once again, they are in Ephesus. And one of the last messages Paul ever sent was a greeting to this pair of Christians who had come to mean so much to him. They, they lived this kind of nomadic life, unsettled life. They had made themselves just available throughout Asia Minor. We find them residents in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, back in Rome, and finally in Ephesus again. But wherever we find them, we find a church in their home. We find a center of Christian fellowship being encouraged through them. Every home should be a church like this. Every home should be a place that welcomes people and is a useful part to the work of God. And what a, a testimony just in two names. And we don't have anything written specifically about them, but this is just we, what we can glean from them and what we see their name and how it's used. What an amazing thing. You know, if people were to write about us and just write a sentence here, what would they find? You know, and Sam was too busy to, you know, meet with somebody, so he went home where he sat and watched TV. You know, what would be our epitaph? What would be the things written about us? Would it be something as welcoming and as inviting? Are, are we going to have this kind of reputation? And notice that the reputation is connected to how they treat people. Even in their ability to equip Apollos with a fuller understanding of the gospel, it's not spoken of them that they were very learned people that they were very you know, educated, that they had all these things. What's talked about them is that they welcomed him in. It's the relational aspect that we see that has the most effect on the people around them. Okay, They went from town to town, but wherever they went, their home was useful to the gospel. Okay, And, and as we see that, we start to see that these names that Paul lists here are all people that had an effect on him and on the gospel. And so he goes on and he says, Greet also 
the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friends, Epentus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Think about that. This is the first person in the whole province of Asia who came to Christ. Here he is. What a, what a testament. Man, what a, what a group of people he's got. This is a who's who in the gospel. You know, these people are monumental. And throughout this, we're seeing this list of names that have so much meaning. And notice that all these names are connected to something. Most of these names are connected to something that they did or were a part of. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. She wasn't just Mary. She was someone who worked very hard for you. And as we see these names starting to unfold, we see them again connected to a number of things. Of the 24 names, 13 occur occur in different documents that we have, which have to do with the emperor's palace in Rome. And so a lot of them are connected to people who were connected to people who were high up. We see that throughout that. In Philippians 4.22, Paul speaks of the saints of Caesar's household. It may be that they were the most important part of those household, even though they were slaves. But it's still important that Christianity seems to have penetrated even into the palace in these early moments of its life. This is, again, about 56 AD that it's being written. And so already we see the spread of Christian faith showing up in all these things. goes on, it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. That means they were in Christ before the stoning or during the stoning of Stephen, early days. And then the name here, Junia, it's interesting because it is most likely that Junius is again a female name. That would mean that in the early church, a woman could be ranked as an apostle. Again, we're seeing the door swing open. Paul says that Andronicus and Junius were Christians before he was. So again, there's a direct link from them to the early church that was in Jerusalem. So that's giving the credibility to why they were apostles, because they were people who actually saw those things, the work of God that was being taken place. And so they're outstanding among the apostles, and one of them's a woman. Again, it's... Interesting to see that these names are connected to history. Every name is. Remember in Genesis when we were going through Genesis and it said, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so. They lived so many years, had so many children, then they died. And then so-and-so begat so-and-so. And then there was that one name. And then there was Enoch. And Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. Our lives... What will they be known for? Will we live? Will we have kids? Will we die? Or will our names be connected to something because we walk with God and then God does something substantial? These people, their names are connected to something substantial. 
They are outstanding among the apostles. They were in prison with Paul. They, they worked hard for your sake. These people made a difference. They made an impact in the world around them. And you see, it's those people whose names get written down, isn't it? You see, even in our history, the people who, who we record in history are the people who make a difference for good or for bad. It could be Abraham Lincoln. It could be Osama bin Laden. It's the people who have an impact in history that get recorded. It's not, you know, Jim Smith, he did nothing, but I'm going to write about him. No, you don't write about a person who does nothing. You write about a person who has an impact. And we need to recognize that, that God is using the people who have an impact on the people around them. And then the question we have to ask ourselves, am I one of those kind of people? Bless you. Am I a person who is having an impact on the lives? Am I a person who is working hard for those around me? Am I a person who is an outstanding person in this area, in this field? Am I a person who opens my home, my heart, my life to those around me to to give of myself to them, to help them in their relationship with God? Or am I just going through my life doing my own thing? I'll live, I'll have kids, I'll go to work, I'll die. But there's nothing really to write about. If we're going to make a difference, and we may never be written about, our names won't be recorded in the canon of Scripture, but we will make an impact on the lives of those around us. And then someday someone will say, well, you know, I'm here because Jillian shared the gospel with me and it made a difference in my life. Or I'm here because Lola spoke to me and opened her home and her heart to me. Or Michael did this. I mean, our names will then be connected to a history because of what we did and how we lived and affected the lives of other people. And so we see that these people all had incredible things attached to them. Verse 8 says, Greet Ampilitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Now, some of these stories that we're going to be engaging in are, are things that we get from little tidbits of what we know. And some of them we're kind of trying to fill in some blanks. We're not positive of all these things, but Ampilitus may well lie uh, just an interesting story. It's a quite common name. It's a slave's name. Most of the time when you see just one name that's recorded, it's because they were a slave. If they were a Roman citizen, they would have multiple names. They would have kind of their surname and then their last name and these things. But when we see just one name, a lot of times it's because they were a slave and they were only given that one name. But there in a, a Christian catacomb, a tomb, there is a decorated tomb with the single name Ampilitus carved on it in bold and decorative lettering. The fact that, again, it's a single name shows that it wasn't a Roman citizen, but it was a slave. But yet it's an elaborate tomb. Here is a slave with an elaborate tomb. Elaborate tombs were given to people who had elaborate positions. What's a slave doing with an elaborate tomb with bold lendering? It indicated that they were a person who was of high rank, at least in the church, recognized. And from it, it's plain to see that the early days 
that the church was established, the distinction of rank were so completely wiped out that it was possible for a man who was once a slave to be a prince in the church. Isn't that amazing? This slave was a prince among men. Why? For the gospel's sake. Social distinctions stopped meaning what they did inside the church. We have no means of knowing that Paul and this man is the exact same one, but he's in the area and it's very possible as Paul would be mentioning the people of prominence there in Rome that were going to be part of the church that was establishing. And so it's very likely that this was a person who was in that area in that time. He goes on, he lists some other names. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stais. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. I love, what, what a title, the fidelity, your, your fidelity to Christ, your commitment to Christ has stood the test. What test? Don't you want to know? What? We don't know. You're thinking I was going to tell you, sorry, I don't have it for you, but it's just a commandment that stands out. Greet those who belong to the household of Astrobolus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tafina and Triposa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Here's again, we see women being commended. And not only are they women, their names mean dainty and delicate. It's thought that they might be twins. Here's dainty and delicate, women who work hard in the Lord. Now, when it says work hard in the Lord, it means that they toil to the point of exhaustion. Here's dainty and delicate who work to the point of exhaustion. What a wonderful picture, isn't it? You know, dainty and delicate, man, they'll work their fingers to the bone. This is so rich. These names, who are these people? And what impact did they have? And who knows if we are here today because of the work of one of these dainty, delicate saints who shared their faith and served some way that connected the gospel to someone, that connected the gospel to us. Greet my dear friend, Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord, the same thing, toiled to the point of exhaustion. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now Rufus, we see Rufus's name appear another place. And we find it once again here. We saw it take place in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. It said, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now we know Cyrene was the one who bore Jesus' cross. Cyrene was a person from Ethiopia, came up, probably spent a lot of his money just to get to enjoy the Passover. He gets to the Passover, the Roman soldiers make him carry the cross of Christ. Imagine you come to celebrate and worship God and you are part of this bloody mess that's going on and you're just caught into the middle of this. But 
being caught in this brings you also into what God is doing. How many times when we think that, oh no, this, is, this isn't what I came here for. This isn't what I had planned. This is terrible. This is an awful change of circumstances. This is a terrible thing that has come upon me. And it is right there that God is actually wanting to meet you. Now, if a man is identified by the names of his son, it means that although he himself may not be personally known to the community to whom the story is being told, his sons are. And that's what makes this interesting, what we see in Mark, whose sons were, and he gives the names of his sons. It could be that the reason they listed the sons in Mark was because the sons were known even more than the father who carried the cross. And so his sons might have been known. To what church then did Mark write the gospel? He wrote it to the church of Rome. Okay, so these names would be there from the Church of Rome when Mark wrote the gospel and why he listed those names. It would probably be because these names were known in the church there at Rome. And he knew that would know that Alexander and Rufus, he would know who they were. Almost certainly, we find Rufus again, the son of Simon who carried the cross of Jesus. We can weave all kinds of kind of ideas about this. But it was men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and first preached the gospel to the Gentile world. We see that in Acts chapter 11. Was Simon one of the men from Cyrene? Was Rufus with him? Again, they're common names, but we start to see people showing up at the time and then being people of prominence. What are the likelihood that they would be, the prominent men, be mentioned in multiple places? So that's why we're connecting the dots in this place. Can it be that in some sense we owe the fact that we are Christians to this strange incident that happened, this man who just happened to carry the cross and these men who happened to carry the gospel to the whole world? Again, it happens. Could it be what's happened here? When we go to Ephesus, there is a riot that raised by the people who served Diana. Remember in Ephesus there, they were crying out against Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to lynch him. Take place in Acts chapter 19. Who stands to look that mob in the face? It's a man called Alexander. Is that the brother who's facing the mob and benefit for Paul, whose name is mentioned again? We don't know, but it's interesting. And again, the name Rufus, why it's mentioned in Mark why the gospel is written to Rome, and here it is Paul writing to this person. It could very well be the son of Simeon, the one who carried the cross for Jesus. He goes on and he says, Greet Asyncritus, Philegion, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and I'm not going to read these names again, so get them while they're hot. And with the name Nereus, we have again another story. In about AD 95, an event occurred which really shocked Rome at the time. Two of their most distinguished people in the city were condemned for being Christians. Remember, if you were a Roman, Caesar was Lord. Your allegiance belonged to Caesar alone. 
So if you were a prominent Roman, to be a Christian meant you were in violation of what it meant to be a Roman, especially a person in higher up, because now you're saying that Jesus is Lord, which is the whole idea of the justification that we're talking about throughout the book of Romans. The justification by faith is that you are acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. He is the reason for the justification. He is the one who's made you right. He is the one who can. And so these people who were in high standing were condemned for being Christian. They were, the names of the two people were Flavius, Clemens, again, the two names, we know they're Roman citizens who had been on the council of Rome and his wife, Domitella, who was of royal blood, she was the granddaughter of Vespasian, a former emperor, and the niece of Domitian, the reigning emperor. So they're people of prominence. In fact, the two sons of Flavius, Clemens, and Domitia had been distinguished successors in the imperial power. They were people who were prominent to succeed. Flavius was executed, and Domitia was banished to the island of Pontia, where years afterward, Paula saw the cave where she drew out a long martyrdom of the Christian name. She's talked about all these people who have been Christians. The point of this is the name of the chamberlain to these two people was Nereus. Is it possible that Nereus, the slave, had something to do with making Christians of these two prominent people of royal? Distinguishment. The church that meets in Caesar's household. Here's one of the names. The name is connected to these other names. What are the chances? Again, these things, we don't have verifiable you know, evidence that this was happening, but there's enough of these things to make it very probable that these people had an influence on their masters who then became Christians and dealt, were dealt with in this way. And... and you see, this is how Christianity spread. It was through the influence of common people. What would make an emperor, a person of nobility, a person of wealth, care enough about what their slave said to give ear to it if it wasn't because what their slave had they wanted? Are our lives rich enough where people look at us and they say, I want what you have? Oh, you don't drive the Porsche and you don't live in the house on the cliffs overlooking the sea. But whatever it is you have, I want that. And our lives are rich enough to cause people in prominent positions to look and yearn for what we have. That's how Christianity spread. But what is it about us today that people look at us and say, really, I don't care for what you have. I don't want what you are about. I, I'll just try and find something else. That's, that should tell us something about ourselves, if anything. Because if our lives aren't so rich that people want what we have, then we're probably not living the lives that God has called us to live. The God who's created the heavens and earth, who wants to use us to further his message, this good news, is it good news? Is it something that people look at us and say, that's incredible, I I want that. Because that's how the gospel spread. That's how Christianity 
took over and changed the Roman Empire. So much so that 300 years later, it became the official religion of Rome. Because they could not stop it, they thought, well, well, let's join it. Which wasn't a good thing, by the way, but it was something that happened because of its influence. How did it get to be such an influence? It was because of the people. Names just like these names here. How does the, the message of Christ take over a community? It happens with names just like your names here. With people just like us who believe this, who are changed by this, and whose lives are evident of the incredible grace and goodness and love of God that it overflows and our homes become sanctuaries and our lives become fountains of living water that pour on the lives of those around us. That's who we are supposed to be. And so we see Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone who has heard about your obedience, everyone who has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. I love that. That's That was my desire for my kids. Be wise about what is good, innocent about what is evil. And so Paul gives this kind of warning. He, he lists two characteristics, men who are hurtful to the church and to the community of Christ, who put obstacles in their way that are contrary to the teachings that he has learned. Remember when Jesus got upset when he overturned the tables in the temple. Why was he upset? Well, you have turned my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Remember where the tables were set up. They were set up on the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. The court where the Gentiles were supposed to come in. And Solomon said, when these foreigners come to this your temple and they pray to you, hear them so that they will know that there is a God in heaven. The God of Israel is the true God. That was Solomon's prayer for the temple. And there in the place where they were to come and pray and God was to answer them, they had put an obstacle Oh, you want to pray here? You have to buy our stuff. And whenever someone puts an obstacle between a person getting to God, there is God's warning. And this is what's happening here. They're putting obstacles in the way contrary to the teachings that you have learned. There is no obstacle between anybody and God because Jesus has dealt with it. Anyone has access to God. If they will come, he will in no way cast them out. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest and peace for your souls. For my burden 
is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find that peace. What if you come to me? There is nothing you have to do to get good enough to come to God. And if anyone says that there is or puts an obstacle in your way, that's what Paul is saying. Watch out for. Keep away from them. Okay? Those are the people that we are warning about. And what he's talking about, their own appetite, smooth talk, flattery, deceive the minds of naive people. They say things, but they aren't genuine. This is very much what the Pharisees were. They claimed to be holy, yet they were trying to kill Jesus. They weren't concerned about the will of God. They were concerned about their power. It happens today. It happens in the church today. There are people who are pastors who are sleeping with the church secretary or whatever. And they live that double life and they're not genuine. Oh, they say the right things. They might have thousands of people following. Remember Jimmy Swaggart? He condemned all these people. Oh man, he fire and brimstone and then here he is going out with prostitutes. These are the kind of people that Paul's talking about. He's saying, you know, they say the right thing, but what God's really looking for is people who are genuine. That's what we need to be. Even if we are faulty, at least we're real, right? Even if I have junk in my life, I can be honest before God and not claim to be something I'm not and say, hey, you know what? I struggle. I'm not a person of faith. I get angry. I lose it sometimes. I'm not what I should be, but this is me. God loves me as I am. That's the gospel. He takes me where I'm at and changes me to be what I can be. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Interesting. What does that mean? The God of peace. The God of peace is the peace of action and victory. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The peace of God is not the peace which has submitted to just let the world go. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Those aren't just the peacekeepers, those who are actually making peace, but It's a peace that is there to change the world, not be changed by it. And so when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, it's because you are going to be the ones who bring the change that needs to take place. And that's exactly what happened. You see, they suffered intense persecution but they were victorious. Rome could not quench the work of God, even though it killed many Christians brutally. And so as Paul's writing this, he's talking to them about the power that they wield as followers of Christ. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Why? Because what you have is going to change the world around you. And those strongholds, those places in Caesar's palace and Caesar's household, they're going to come falling down. 
And pretty soon those people in high places are going to bow their knee to the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Why? Because the God of peace, who is now your Lord, your God, is going to use you to change those things in the world. So the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and it took place. This isn't talking about the end times when, you know, the Lord returns. This is, he's talking to the people here. There could be application there, but I believe he's talking specifically to what's taking place there. But I think the application isn't that someday Jesus is going to come back and then set everything right. I think the application is we today are going to bring about the peace of God in the world around us that is going to crush Satan under our feet. You see, there's a personal application that's supposed to take place here. When he says, crush Satan under your feet, you're supposed to be involved with this. Why? Because the God of peace is going to use you to bring his peace to the people around you. And so it's important to see that. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Verse 21, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, Sopater, my fellow Jews. And so here we see Timothy. Timothy was Paul's, basically the one who Paul was raising up to carry on this gospel, someone who was with him throughout these things and other names, people who were there with him. And he says fellow Jews because he's, again, wanting to make sure that people understand throughout this letter he is a Jew. But, as we have seen, God has fulfilled his work through the perfect Jew, Jesus. The covenant faithfulness of God has been completed. Jesus died on the cross. It ended the exile for them and brought in this newness. The resurrection that Ezekiel talks about took place there at the cross. And we see that here he's saying, I also am a Jew. And he says, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. I remember when I first read that, I thought, wait, I thought Paul was writing it. But he was just a scribe. He was writing these things down. It's like, wait, who's Tertius? I thought, oh, I found something out. Wait till I tell everybody, you know. Tertius wrote the book of Romans. No, it was Paul. He was just a scribe. And he's greeting them. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here in joy sends you his greetings. Eratuus, who is the city's director of public works. Notice people of prominence are being mentioned here. Bless you. And our brother Quartus send their greetings. And then he concludes here, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Isn't this everything that he's been talking about? Isn't this a summation of the whole book of Romans that we've been going through? What is the mystery that God was going to, through Christ, bring the world, the Gentiles, to himself? It is the fulfillment of the covenant. What, what covenant? God made with Abraham. By you, all the nations will be blessed. 
Remember, as we've been going through this, this is what the Jewish mind thought. Through us, the world is going to come into the right place, and so we have to get out of exile so that we can take our, our prominent role so that we can have, through our laws, an establishment of how God is going to bring that to place. And Paul says, no, that wasn't what God intended at all. God intended through the perfect Israelite, Jesus, to bring the completion of all these things. The covenant was fulfilled. How can the covenant be fulfilled? We're living in exile. We haven't yet been brought to our place. The covenant was fulfilled because Jesus took the role and completed it. You couldn't. You were in exile. You were in sin. How could you bring the world to God when you yourselves were fallen? We talked about how God amplified the sin of the Israel so that he could be magnified. Can't go back there, but that's the whole things that he's talking about. That's the mystery hidden for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. What prophetic writings? The scriptures. All that he talked about, the prophecies about Christ coming, giving himself for the people. We saw that in Psalms. We saw that in Isaiah. All those things that Paul has been quoting for the Gentiles to come to obedience that comes from faith. It's a summary of what we read in Romans based on the covenant prophecies, promises of the Old Testament, based on the mystery that God had kept secret all that time. This is what the covenant plan looks like. Jesus has fulfilled it. It is complete complete now. And, And as we see the amazing thing that God did in fulfilling this covenant with Abram, how he did it in a way that no one could imagine, but Jesus revealed so perfectly, he says, to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And it's interesting here, the the way it's worded. It's, It's really incorrect grammar. Because when he says the only wise God, be glory through Jesus Christ, is Jesus the wise God or is Jesus how God is being glorified? And it's meant to be that for a reason. You see, Paul was a monotheist. Hero Israel, Lord our God is one, but he is a Christ monotheist. Here, O Israel, Lord our God is one, and Christ is the one. And so it's obscure for a reason. Who is he talking about? Who is the only wise God? Is it Jesus, or is Jesus how God is being glorified? And he would say, yes, that's how it is. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ Amen. And so Paul completes this letter again for like the third time. Okay, he's completed it and then he oh and then he completed it. And then he lists these names. Again, these names are important people that they would recognize, churches that were established in different homes throughout there. And of course he probably had to list everyone, because you know how churches can get if you don't get listed. You know, you didn't say my name, I knew it, he didn't like me. Of course, churches aren't like that today, right? So Paul is including everybody, and there's a lot of prominent people that are here to give an understanding of just, again, the message and how far it reached into Rome at that time. Are there any questions about this chapter, or as we're 
ending Romans and all the things that we've talked about. Any questions about any of those things? Yes, Lola. Um, because at that time they couldn't be. You know, in that covenant, in that agreement that God had established with the people, they wouldn't be. And so, but then why did he treat Mary almost like she was? So even though she wasn't listed among the 12, she was with them, learning from him, you know. And so, I don't Well, everything changed when they left the synagogue. I mean, you know, the rabbi position changed, and then there became pastors and deacons and elders. The whole uh, structure of what the church was was different than the synagogue. You know, and so a lot of things changed in that place. Um, you know, they start. They originally met in synagogues, but then they got kicked out of synagogues, and then they had to meet in homes. You know, except Paul, one time he rented a building and says, "Well, let's have a meeting here next to the synagogue." You know, um, but it just changed the dynamic, and, and it changed the dynamic just between how God had been working in the people, and then how He was now working now. You know, this new humanity where He says, "There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave." nor free, male, nor female, but we are one in Christ. Yeah, that was going to be after, and this is what he's starting. And so there was going to be a change. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Jesus worked in where he was at, but then he changed everything. And that's one of the things we're going to look at next week. We're going to see how God, I mean, there's basically six I shouldn't go into it, but there's like six chapters. You know, there's the creation, there's the fall, there's God dealing with Israel, there's the church, there's chapter five, which is kind of where we're at, and then there's chapter six, the return of Christ and the summation of all things. God works different ways than throughout all those areas. You know, God worked in a different way before the nation of Israel and the law than he did after the church and the Law are two different things, as we've seen in the book of Romans. We are not under the law. The law has been completed through Christ. What God meant to do through Abraham has been fulfilled. You know, it's done. Okay, that's why we don't have to keep the Sabbath. That's why we don't have to worry about the food laws, the, you know, uh, being circumcised, keeping the Sabbath and those things. And so there's been a change that's taken place. There is a new covenant you know, a new establishing that God's going to do. And so there was a big change that took place in how all those things took place and were seen, you know, and that's something that's happened. Yeah, it's, I mean, God just changed everything. The, the status of a woman at that time was, again, that of property or of slaves. I mean, they were just a little bit higher depending on the household they were in. You know, and so it was a pretty bad place for a woman. You know, the the rabbis would say, I thank God that I was not made a Gentile or a woman. That was their prayer. You know, um, it's like, great, thank you. You know, I mean, it, and then all of a sudden we see so much promise. I mean, there's nowhere in the New Testament that a woman is portrayed in a, a bad light. You know, every woman in the New Testament is actually seen in a, just a positive way. And, and so it's interesting. And then throughout the book of Acts, we see the same thing. We see except for um, Ananias and Sapphira. You know, we see, and then the, yeah, most of the time it's seen in a positive light. So it's remarkable, the change. But is Christianity known in our society today for being a liberator of women? Why not? You know, another thing that stood out to me here is one of the things Paul does 
is try to erase the line between the Jew and the Gentile. And the gospel is still meant to go towards the Jew. We are still to be evangelizing in the synagogue. But the way Paul talked about doing it was to make them jealous because the promise of God, your promise, is now being given to the Gentile. Are we living a life in such a way that we would make our friends, our family who are Jewish, jealous because the promises that were given to them are now being lived out by us? Or are we just condemning them, saying, well, you didn't do this, you just, because church history is terrible when it comes regards to the Jews. I mean, it's terrible. Church history is filled, and we got to acknowledge those things. You know, we have to acknowledge the mistakes that were made in the name of Jesus. You know, from the Inquisition to, you know, the Crusades, there's a lot of things done in Jesus' name that just was not good. And there's a lot of things done in Jesus' name today that are not good. Are we living a life that would make these people jealous to want the promises that were theirs? Because that's, I think, what we need to do. You know, show them that God's promises are here for you and we're enjoying them because of Jesus. But we have to get past some of those obstacles that are there. Now, there's, I mean, there's still a whole lot of people that don't, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week um, when we get into that place because. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. Don't, don't have time to do it all today. Any other thoughts on what we read here today? Anything? Well, good. I'm glad you brought it up because, yeah, it is supposed to be, you know, greet one another. It means we're, you're supposed to be dear to each other. You know, that was a custom to greet one another with a kiss. And he was saying, show that towards each other. Any other thoughts, comments? Thanks, man. Glad you were here. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, I'm so uh, just, again, thankful for this book, this letter that was used by this incredible man. And Lord, that we have been able to journey with and through. And Lord, I thank you for the insights that you've given me. And I pray to all of us through this time. And Lord, I I pray we would move forward in the truths that we have learned and carry them into our lives that we would put to practice, Father, all these things, that we would be the new humanity that you have created through Christ. Bless my brothers, my sisters here, and may we, Father, represent you well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.